0: Lord, enable us to trust you more this morning, Lord, that we would step out upon the waters, Lord, the unknown in faith, Lord, keeping our eyes on you, Lord, knowing that you are the one who are causing us, enabling us to walk upon the waters, Lord, whatever the circumstances might be, Lord, that we trust you, we keep our eyes on you. We just thank you for your presence here this morning, Lord. We ask that. Just once again, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts as we open your word. We give you the praise this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus God, I thank you, I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tithe of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying god be merciful to me a sinner luke 18:10 through 13 we see in this parable two men who went to the temple to pray the first man was a pharisee a religious leader of the day he was probably highly esteemed and admired by most and he went This day into the temple to pray. But what does his words reveal about his heart? What do we learn about this man? The religious leader who was supposed to guide others into right relationship with God was full of self-righteousness and pride as it poured out of his heart as he prayed. And the second man was a tax collector, a worldly wise man who was considered a terrible sinner of his day. But on that day, he went also to the temple to pray. What does his prayer reveal about him? What do we learn about his heart? Well, we see a man who was broken, who was sorry, who was full of remorse, who confessed his sinfulness Before God. And the reality of this church, we learn a lot about others and ourselves when we pray. Jesus said it like this, out of the overflow or the abundance, the mouth speaks. In past sermons, we've discussed that our prayer life reveals our dependence on God. If we aren't praying, you can surely know we aren't depending on God, but depending on ourselves. But today, I want us to examine our own hearts as we discuss the discipline of prayer. The content of our prayers reveal how we see God, how we see others, and how we see ourselves and the world around us. And this leads to point number one. Point number one says, prayer gives us a glimpse of the heart. Prayer gives us a A glimpse of the heart. What we pray gives us clarity of what we love, who we worship, what we desire, and what we are truly living for. John Stott says it this way. One of the best ways to discover a Christian's chief anxieties and ambitions is to study the content of his prayers and the intensity with which he prays them. And this morning, this takes us to our main text, where we'll be in Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. We're continuing our study in the letter to the Ephesian Ephesus church, And in this section, we are going to get a glimpse of Paul the Apostle's heart as he prays for the church in the surrounding areas. So as we begin, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we thank you for your love and your grace. Father, we thank you that we can have access to, to you through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can pray to you. May we be a prayerful people, a prayerful church, because we recognize if we're not praying, we're doing things in our own strength. May we make much of you and little about ourselves. Father, I ask that your spirit work mightily in our hearts. Help us to truly grasp a real living, breathing relationship with you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Paul says this, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, we may grant to you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ... May dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, and the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God." So what is the content of Paul's prayer in this section in Ephesians 3 verses 14 through 19? Does he beg? Does he ask? Does he plead for God to free him from Roman captivity? Does he cry out for God to help him being under house arrest? Is that what Paul prays for here? Of course not, right? Paul turns his attention to God and to the church. We see his love for God and his love for the church. Can you imagine such a scenario as this? I mean, Paul is under house arrest, chained to a Roman centurion, and his attention, his focus is on God's people. His heart is pouring out for God's people that have struggles, but not even the struggles that he is facing. Paul, who was burdened for the church, going through struggles, tells us as a church to carry one another's burdens, for this pleases the Lord. Do we pray for others like we pray for our own situations? How much do we actually truly love and care for one another? Because it's often revealed in how we pray. But let's start. Let's go back to Ephesians 3 verse 14 where we will sort of go through each verse. And Paul starts by saying this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father we see Paul's posture of bowing when he is praying one of submission one of reverence one of his own nothingness before the almighty god but Paul says i bow my knees and he goes on in verse 14 and sa- verse 15 and says from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named And at first, we hear this and think, wow, that sounds so profound, so deep. But I ask you, what does it really mean? What is Paul talking about when he says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named? But let's reread entirety verses 14 and 15 to understand what Paul is trying to say. So it says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So what we have here is this picture of God the Father overseeing his children, which are in heaven, and those like us, the rest of us, that are still on earth, believers and followers of Christ Jesus. And the followers of Christ in heaven and on earth make up the whole family of God. That's a pretty amazing picture to imagine. But let's go on to Ephesians 3 and now we're in verse 16. And it says this: that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the spirit in your inner being. Paul prays that God would strengthen the inner man by the power of his Holy Spirit. I ask you church, what is the inner man Paul is referring to here? The inner man in Scripture often is referring to the heart of man. What is the heart of man? And why does Paul pray for the heart of God's people? Well, turn with me to Proverbs 4, verse 23. Proverbs 4, verse 23. And we're going to look at this in the ESV translation, but also the God's Word translation as well, because it seems to be a little clearer to understand in that translation. And it says this in the ESV, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Or the God's Word translation says this, Guard your heart more than anything else, because the source of your life flows from it. So the heart in this scripture reveals that it's the life center of who we are. The heart is why we do what we do, scripture teaches. It is who we truly are. It is where our motives come from. And Jesus says in Luke 6:43 through 45 he gives us another perspective on the heart so turn to Luke 6:43 through 45 where Jesus is discussing with his disciples and he says this for no good tree bears bad fruit nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit or each tree is known by its fruits for figs are not gathered from thorn bushes nor are grapes picked from bramble bushes The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So Jesus says here our behaviors are a fruit of our hearts. So, when we talk about symptoms like anger, worry, fear, addictions, lust, these are all fruit that are connected to heart problems. The question is do we focus on the fruit issues when we see someone struggling or ourselves struggling, or do we start getting distracted by fruit issues instead of getting to the heart of the problem? We see someone who struggles with fear and we instantly want to give them coping mechanisms to handle the fear. The question is, how should we look at fear from a biblical perspective? And by the way, we should ask that question to whatever we're facing. How should we look at that from a biblical perspective? For example, a person who is struggling with fear means they're often thinking of who? Self, right? Self is correct. And we see in 1 John, it tells us that perfect love casts out or drives out what? Fear. So fear often means the person is lacking love. And this fear hinders them from loving God and others the way they are called to. So instead of focusing on fear, we might need to be focusing on helping someone learn to love love that's what we're talking about when we're talking about heart issues or we hear a marital couple fighting and naturally most of us would say they just need to learn some communication techniques right again though what does the god's word say about arguing and fighting well let's turn to james 4 1 james 4 1 where we will see what the bible says about quarreling and fighting James says this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So James The half-brother of Jesus says it's not so much communication techniques that you need. It's really that as a marital couple, you need to repent of your own sinfulness because you have your own agendas when you talk to your spouse and both those agendas collide, which is called selfishness. And you need to start looking at what the other person wants instead of what you want. What we see on the surface with ourselves and others should alert us that there is something much deeper that needs to be changed. And it's not a behavioral step or change that's going to make the real difference. We fly off the handle when someone cuts us off on the road or we exaggerate a situation to look good or we worry all the time. These are all symptoms that stem from real heart problems. Point number two. Point number two says, the heart guides our thoughts and actions. Point number two says, the heart guides our thoughts and actions. Jesus said that out of the heart comes evil thoughts. Do we think about that? That actually our thoughts come from our hearts. They don't come from Satan whispering in my ear. It says right in the scriptures in Matthew 15 and Mark 7 that out of our heart come thoughts. Paul David Tripp says that we live out of our hearts. And Paul the Apostle prays that God would strengthen the inner man, the heart by the Holy Spirit. Paul is asking God to change us further, help us to be more controlled by the Holy Spirit at the core of who we are as individuals, the deepest part of us, the place where we really live life. But Paul goes on, But I'm going to reread verse 16 again. And it says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened. So Paul asks that he, that is God, may strengthen you or us, right? Paul depended on God's sovereignty for heart change through the Holy Spirit. We get a glimpse of Paul's perspective of God here. His big view, his right view of God. But also we see, think about this, this is the apostle Paul and he's actually showing his own limitations even as an apostle that god is going to be the one that have to strengthen us at the deepest part of us paul knew that god is going to have to be the one to strengthen the church god is the only one that can change the heart We can't change others, and we surely can't change ourselves. It has to be a work of God. That's why it's so important that we're depending on him. We can repent of sin. For example, if we struggle with addictions like alcoholism, we can stop going to bars, we can stop hanging out with people who tempt us to drink, and we can even start reading the Word of God, praying and going to church, and we could still struggle with the craving and desire to drink alcohol. It is only until God goes into that person's heart and touches their heart that the craving and the desire will ever be gone and be dissipated but this leads to point number three point number three says God transforms the heart God transforms the heart Paul asks God to strengthen the church at the deepest part of man the heart the inner man God gets the glory for our change we don't get the glory we don't say you know man I've really changed a lot man I'm really great no No, that's not what we do. We turn to God and we fall on our knees and say, Thank you, God, for the change that you've had in me. We have to continue to depend on Christ for our strength. God transforms the heart. We are reminded of how weak we truly are as humans. That's why it's so important for us to be Recognize our spiritual helplessness and continue to depend on Christ. We don't leave spiritual helplessness. We continue that through our walk because we stay dependent on Christ. Paul had firsthand experience of this weakness that I'm talking about and how we had to depend on God's sovereignty. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8. 2 Corinthians 12, 8, where we'll see Paul's struggle that he dealt with. Paul says this, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me. So Paul says three times I said, Lord, can you tell this is a little bit of a hindrance? I can't actually do what I need to be doing because I have this struggle going on. But what was Paul pleading about? Verse 7 tells us a thorn in the flesh, and it was given to Paul by God's sovereign will. Let's read back in verse 7, and it says this, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. It was God's will. Satan wasn't trying to keep Paul from being conceited. It was God who was doing that. God used this weakness to keep Paul humble. Paul depended on God for his strength. Paul knew God was sovereign over all of life, even through his struggles and his trials. But let's get back to the the main text. And We're in Ephesians 3, at the end of verse 16, at the beginning of 17, which says, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What is at the center of our faith this morning, church? What is the driving force behind our faith? Are we motivated to do what is right because it benefits us? Or, or because we want to portray a certain image of ourselves to others? Or is it because of our fervent love for Christ? The Westminster Short of Catechism asks the question what is the chief end of man? Or what is the primary purpose of man? And then they answer by saying man's chief or primary purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So it says here our goal, our purpose in life is to glorify God. We look at verses like 1 Corinthians 10.31 that says, whether we eat or drink or we, whatever we do, we do it all to the glory of God, right? And we conclude that in every situation, our goal as Christ's followers is to honor God glorify and please the Lord. But, what does it mean to actually enjoy Him forever? The second part of the answer. Enjoy Him forever. Are we passionate for Christ? Is our heart aflamed for Christ? And this isn't a trick question, by the way. We can examine our own hearts and see if we truly are in relationship with Christ. Do we have a real and living, breathing Relationship, fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Point number four says, heart transformation brings us to Christ. Point number four says, heart transformation brings us to Christ. That is why Paul says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts Paul Tripp says we must not offer people a system of redemption, a set of insights and principles. We offer people a redeemer. The deepest part of us is supposed to be passionate for Christ. That is why we should be driven to read the word of God. We are driven by Christ to train our kids in the admonition of the Lord. We should be driven by Christ to prayer. We should be driven the Christ to sacrifice ourselves for others. We should be di- driven to Christ because of we want to be part members of the local church. It should be driven by a passionate, fervent relationship with Christ. But, but I must confess that most of us, including myself, are not usually always being motivated by our relationship with Christ. Scripture clearly tells us that our hearts are fickle, that our hearts are going all over the place. We're like a little kid that's all of a sudden distracted by a shiny little thing that we're looking at. That's what the Word says about us. But that's the good news because Paul prays that God will grant us further, deeper, and continual growth in that relationship with Christ. That's the whole point. That's why Paul says that he wants the churches to be strengthened from their inner man so that their devotion to Christ will be single-minded instead of all over the place, and their heart will be pure and undefiled. That's what we're Shooting for, to be in the likeness of Christ Jesus, for God's glory. But what does this look like? What does Paul pray further for? Well, let's continue on. We're back in Ephesians 3, verses 18 and 19. So turn to Ephesians 3, 18 and 19. And Paul says this, May have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So, how do we have a deeper, more vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ? Well, Paul says the answer lies in knowing God's love. The zeal, the fire, the passion for Christ revolves around the depth of love we actually have for God. How much love do we have for Christ this morning? Do we pray that God gives us more love for Christ? Point number five says we need to know the love of Christ Point number five says we need to know the love of Christ, and and Paul says God has to give you a love you can't even understand. Go back to verse, let's see, verse uh, eighteen, where it says to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So Paul's saying, I'm going to get, I need, you need to have a love that you can't understand. God has to enlighten us, show us, reveal to us a deeper love for Christ. Paul says, this love is so incomprehensible for us to understand. This love is so magnificent that we cannot comprehend it in our finite minds. The Holy Spirit actually has to illuminate our minds and hearts. Paul prays that God would allow the churches to grasp such a deep love for him. That's why 1 John 4.19 says we love because he, that is God, first loved us. We know that God loved us while we were still yet sinners, the Bible says, and enemies. And he saved us anyway. He made us his children, the Bible says. This grace that this is the love we are talking about, this undeserved favor of God. Love we cannot fathom or comprehend. Love ca- that caused cr- that God to sacrifice his own son, for us. As we know this love, we will want to live for him, for Christ, not out of rules and regulations and obligations, but out of a gratitude and thankfulness for Christ. So what does this love actually look like? Does this love look like emotions that are here today and gone tomorrow? Or can we really fall in and out of this type of biblical love? Let's look at biblical love for a second so we can begin to see the depth, the height, the gravity of what biblical love truly is. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. And I know, I know. This passage is read at every wedding and it's so familiar to us that we tend to ignore it, forget it, or overlook this section. But there's such significance and richness in these verses that we need to hear them afresh with fresh eyes and fresh thinking. So please think deep about what love really is as we read this. And it says this love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, or other translations say love never fails. These verses reveal that love acts. It does not sit dormant in our hearts. And point number six says biblical love leads to action. Point number six says that biblical love leads to action. This love that I'm talking about starts in our hearts and pours out of our, heart, out of our lives. Or to say it another way, it starts in our hearts and works its way out through our thoughts and actions. We see this love drives us to be patient. We see that this love does not brag about self. We see that this biblical love does not focus on self at all. It is others' focused. This love does not rejoice over sin, but when truth is proclaimed, this love lives for God and others. Amen? So how does Paul end this section of Scripture? Let's go back to the main text, and I want to look at the end of Ephesians 3.19, which says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, that you may be filled with with all the fullness of God, that we may be fully and wholly controlled from head to toe by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we may be overflowing with Christ in all areas of life, that we have zeal for Christ in our struggles, that we have zeal for Christ in our pain and in our suffering, that we may have zeal for Christ in our blessings, in our successes, in our joys, that we have a zeal for Christ even in the mundane, boring moments of everyday life. The point is, is that we're supposed to be saturated and have zeal for Christ in all areas of life. That's what we're called to as a body of believers, as Christians, as members of Christ's church. In conclusion... We can look at Paul's prayer and see man, a man who was controlled by the Holy Spirit. God magna, was magnified and glorified in his life. The Holy Spirit gave Paul a supernatural love that can only be grasped by the Holy Spirit giving it to us. Do we know such a supernatural, radical love? Can we say at the heart of our love is a redeemer named Christ that motivates us to do and say everything that we're doing? Does our prayers resemble Paul's? Well, I want to end this morning by reading Paul's prayer and praying it for the family church. So let's go to him in prayer. For this reason, we, the family church, bow our knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant us to be strengthened with power through His Holy Spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, the family church, are rooted and grounded in love, and we may have strength to comprehend, with all the saints, what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we, the family church, may be filled with all the fullness of God. In Jesus' name, amen.